Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Go check out the new manifesto on lifestyle design, authored by yours truly, Buy Your Own Island, now available on Amazon. It's been called inspiring and empowering and one of the best new books on entrepreneurship. Lifestyle design for 2015 and beyond. Look for it on Amazon or go download the audiobook for free at buyyourownisland.com forward slash audio dash book. Hello, my name is Danny Flood. Thank you so much for listening to this interview brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for leading the adventurous lifestyle. I am extremely honored and excited today because I am joined by a very special guest. His name is Tony Mangan. He's an Irish ultramarathon runner who recently just completed the most extraordinary journey, which he calls the World Jog. He left his home in Dublin in October 2010 and then jogged across the entire world, starting from the top of North America down through Central America and to the very tip of South America, then through Australia, Asia, and Europe. The journey lasted four years and two days. During that time, he ran the equivalent of one marathon a day. So, of course, I had to invite him onto this show to learn how he did it and what we can all learn from this incredible adventure. So, Tony, just wanted to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much for the, the invite, Danny, and, and hello to your, to your listeners. And, and I'm delighted to, exp- to share some of my experiences on, on my run. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I named the, my expedition the World Jog. It was tongue-in-cheek, but <laughs> the further I got into it, um, I, I kind of regretted that domain. I'd rather call it a world run, even though it was tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you. You didn't want to make too big a deal of it. It would have become a a mental monster if you named it anything more than a world jog. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that 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 was it. And also, I I um, I was trying to find a way um, for just the ordinary Sunday morning runner to come out that they wouldn't be intimidated, thinking I was El Garouche, uh, which I was far from. Believe me. Um, um, by the time I finished, um, so I was just trying to, uh, I was tongue in cheek really, um, but yeah, that's that's probably the only regret I have of the whole run was the actual domain name. But um, as they say, never look back <laughs> unless you're running across the roads of India and looking for trucks coming from behind you. Never look back. <laughs> so, so you didn't start or, running until you were 30 years of age. Um, maybe you could tell me a little bit about your backstory, and then I want to lead into how that culminated into uh, what you've done. Yeah, um, to be honest with you, it's uh, pretty complicated. I went to, when I was in school. I was never really um, um, sports minded. I was, I guess, I was pretty much a, a sports wimp. And uh, when I left school, I I um, developed an interest for traveling, and um, I started reading travel books. I and uh, eventually. After reading a book by an Irish woman, Dervla Murphy, who cycled from Ireland to India, I decided I would cycle to India. But then I got thinking, well, what do I do when I get halfway around the world? So the answer was pretty straightforward. I'd keep going. And so I 
cycled around the world between 1978 79 and uh, that had um um i was on, i was fairly young at the time 21 22 so um i guess uh, my appetite was already whetted and um to continue the story the, the way questions off is very long to answer um to continue the story and um, i returned to ireland after that world cycle and um continued traveling on my bicycle for in-between jobs or uh, extended vacation uh, places as far apart as, as Iceland, Cuba, uh, former East Europe before it opened up. And um, eventually I drifted out of cycling and into just regular marathon running. Um, um, I got caught up in the running boom in Ireland in the, in the, in the mid-80s. And um, I just enjoyed running. I um, eventually emigrated to the United States. I got a green card to Colorado, the home of ultra running, I like to call it. And um, so I started running trail races and extreme races. That's where I discovered ultra running in, in the United States. I was fairly successful at, co- at competing. And um, so during that time, um, um I, I used to dream a lot and daydream when I was running in mountain trails and uh, even back home in Ireland when I eventually returned to Ireland in 2002. Um, I um, just got this mad idea when I came back from a 20-mile run. Uh, I said to myself, I felt so good, so strong while I was running on the trails today. I felt I could run around the world. That's when the monster was born. <laughs> I I couldn't get rid of this Frankenstein monster. Um, the only way to get rid of it was um, to exercise it. In other words, just go out and do it. It it um, I was feeding this monster, I guess, by reading travel books, and um, and I really couldn't see how I would do it because I got the idea it, um, 25 years ago now. So I I did actually live with this dream, wondering how I could do it for 20 years before I eventually. Up the road. Um, in t- 25 years ago, I guess equipment uh, wasn't very well developed. We didn't have jogging strollers that people put their baggage, camping gear, and spare clothes into and push along the highway like we do now. These jogging strollers, just in case uh, some of your listeners don't know what I'm talking about, it's, it's just like a cart, but you put your child in it. It's an excuse not to get out running if you're a, a parent. So Journey, journey runners like me or journey walkers, we throw out the baby and just put the camping gear in. So, um, so that's that's what I did. And um, so, um, but 25 years ago, I, I didn't really see the the method how to do it. So gradually over the years, I saw the way to do it. And um, so I waited for the window of opportunity when I was made redundant from my construction job, and. Um, I just decided I would do it. I, I, the 20, 20 years I planned it in my head, um, I had many, many ideas, and it just kept growing and growing. And one of the ideas was to start with the Dublin Marathon, my own city marathon, and to time the finish with my own city marathon, which I managed to do four years later. Um, so I got all these crazy notions, and and um, um, it was more difficult than, than I than I could even possibly imagine. And, and I, on my blog, theworldjog.com, um, I detail 
some of my experiences, but um, um, some of my readers probably got an idea how difficult it was. But it, it was it was excruciatingly difficult, mentally, physically, and and emotionally. I'll, I'll come to that when you do. Um, good journalists always ask about what's the low points. They rarely ask about the high points. Uh, I know that's one of your questions. Um, so um, I had another thing uh, motivating me to finish to finish the run. Um, my mom at the finish line. Um, yeah, so 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 that was. Um, I told you, I warned you. It's it's a long it's a long answer to to the most popular question. Why? That that was the first question I wanted to ask you was uh, the why. <laughs> why did you decide to? What what drove you to uh, bicycle around the world when you were twenty one, and then uh, run across the world when you were? Uh, I think you were about fifty three when you started this journey, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, fifty three when I started, fifty seven when I finished. And you yeah, referenced, uh, you referenced I guess, this, uh, this monster. You said you had this monster. I guess it was like an inclination or a dream. Can you describe what that monster was like? Was that what drove you? Uh, probably like uh, Incredible Hulk without the violence. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it was. It was just to be to be honest with you. Once I got the the idea from that um, endorphin field run that I mentioned earlier in, in the in the park in Dublin, um, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I was trying to figure out how can I do this? Is this really practical? Just put a backpack on and and run, and because nobody ever there was there was that was pre-internet days, so. To research anything, you'd have to go down to a bookstore or to the library. Even the smallest task took a lot of effort in an afternoon just to find a book that I could be doing. <laughs> well, now that while I'm waiting for the kettle to boil, I could Google something and the answer could come up. So, so, so it was also um, the the logistics of how to get it done. Uh, when I got the idea, was 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 just a, a big monster. Um, but I, I was. Going to think when I was working in my construction job, and um, I also repaired photocopiers, a copier technician. Um, it was never more than three or four hours from my waking mind, my plan to run around the world. I couldn't get it out of my mind. I was trying to figure out how much it would cost, how much would I need um, every day, how many days are in two years, three years, four years. I, I could tell it at the the snap of a finger, um, and and um, I was trying to figure out my route. What way would I go? I had my route figured out in my head before I even started. Uh, um, before I was made redundant, uh, I had my the logo from my website um, designed in my head for ten years before. I had much of my equipment bought. And um, one lesson I did learn, if you're doing planning something like this, don't buy equipment too early because you always change it. And also, if you buy it, you usually have to buy it and there's a chance of getting a freebie from a sponsor. So, um, yeah, it, it, I just couldn't really get this idea out of my head. It was one of those um, uh, things I really had to do, put to bed. The only way to do it was to run. Uh, and um, to continue the, the why question, um, when I was on my bicycle trip, I also... Um, fell in love with with connections with people uh, I, I know you're a cyclist yourself uh, um, cycling along the road when you're going at a slow pace slow slow mode travel you have you're more intimate you meet people you see them at the side of the road you stop you go into cafes 
you sleep in old ranchos, abandoned houses, under bridges and all of that. And um, so even when I was cycling around the world, I felt I was going too slow. I wanted to slow down another gear. So um, um, so uh, um, I did have a battle of would I walk the world or would I run the world. Um, so obviously when I became an extreme runner, I had to run. What I loved about my run, um, almost every day I was on the road, was just going along, going through places like Colombia and seeing people in the fields uh, with machetes cutting the grass or or um, working in the fields, repairing the roads or whatever. And they'd look up at me and the hand would go up instantly. In other words, what are you doing? And and I could speak a few words of Spanish and just to be able to stop. And I, I call these people connections, just to be able to connect with people. It's so wonderful, so wonderful. Um, so so I, I just figured that the, the best way to see the world is on foot. There's no doubt about it, be it running or walking. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I really like what you said there. Um, I think the highlights of your travels were the experiences you've had with the people you've met during the journey, would you say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and my blog is full of pictures of people, as I mentioned, the, the farm laborers or the people I've met uh, in cafes, restaurants and places diverse as um, the United States to East Timor, the outback in Australia, um, roadside shacks in, in India, Burma, Myanmar, when I was escorted by the police, and the same again in Mexico. Pictures of people, probably eight or nine out of ten, um, and just the odd little picture of, of scenery uh, or Taj Mahal. And I'm not really a tourist. Um, for me, tourism starts with the people, not Taj Mahal or Machu Picchu, but there are, there are obviously um, exceptions. I, I did visit those places, but for me, it was mostly um, the people people connections. I think those are the true cultural uh, treasures, and that's how you can really come to understand the world are through the people you meet and the experiences you have together. Um, would you say that that was the, the best reward for you? I mean, um, what, what, how, how have you changed? Because I've, from what I've heard, I, I've, I've read interviews by other adventurers, uh, John Goddard. I don't know if you're familiar with John Goddard. Um, he, he was called the world's greatest goal achiever and the real-life Indiana Jones. And what he said is that uh, he would live among these tribesmen. And, um, and he, he, would, he would kind of try to show that he's on the same level, or actually he would be on the same level and, and not feel like he was superior to them. And he said that if, if you acted like you're superior to them, then you lose the chance to really connect with them. Do you, do you feel like you could really uh, bond with these people and experience life through their eyes as you travel? Absolutely. Um, but uh, to, to, to be honest with you, um, even though we, we say, uh, first, firstly, I, I found that um, you're absolutely right. If you, if, if you do have any feelings of, of uh, superiority, um, you'd be just <laughs> cast aside, uh, uh, rejected. Uh, but at the bottom, at the end of the day, um, when you see what's what's happening in the Mediterranean today, um, all we've got to do is go to our embassy and we'd be bailed out. We do always have that um, that that card, Trump card, to play. Un unfortunately, that's that's the way the world is. Um, yeah, but I, I've I've been in those places. I've been in houses in Indonesia. India, in, in with the people in their houses, uh, being a guest, and sometimes um, um, 
you obviously don't have time to go into um, the depth I'd like to go into. Um, I've made my own ways of connecting with the people. For example, I, I, um, this my my task was a monumental task, and to keep my head around it, I had to break it up into small st- manageable. St- stages of Southeast Asia, shall we say, or a thousand kilometers a month. Um, So when I was about to start Southeast Asia, I was reading the Lonely Planet travel book and and it talked about house days and um, staying in people's homes like uh, bed and breakfast that we have uh, in Europe. And and when I got there, it, it sounded great, but when I got there, it was very touristic and $20, $30, which was about 10 times more than what you'd pay for a roadside um, squalor dollar hotel, as I call them. So I said, well, what can I do about this? I devised my own homestay, and I felt I was doing something for both the people and, and me. What I did was I printed out business cards by going to Google Translate in Indonesia uh, and, and copied and pasted and then went and then cut them up. I often cut up my business cards on sheets of A4 paper in people's houses with their scissors. I'd go up to a village, wait for a crowd to gather around and hand them out and i say, put make a, a sleeping sign, say, can I sleep in your home, please? And here's some money, maybe five, six, seven, eight dollars or whatever. So what I was getting there was I was getting the real homestay. I was also getting a serious um, uh, experience experience um, uh, and and I was giving something back, probably the equivalent of two or three days' wages, and it was unrehearsed for them. They they don't learn how to be smart, um, 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 because uh, treat me like a tourist or whatever. I was dropping in, I was surprising them, and I was getting um, a great insight into their homes. I I stayed in homes in Indonesia where. 30, 40 people would gather around, the television would be turned off and they just stared at me. <laughs> and and remember, I'd probably just run 30, 40, 50 kilometers that day. And it's not just going out and running it one day, it's a compounding effort. Most days I was about to collapse uh, physically and mentally, but um, I had to kind of hype myself up for, for the show, in inverted commas, as I used to call it. So... Um, I, I, I got into the living rooms of countless homes, uh, in, in uh, mostly in, in poor countries, but also in the United States and Canada in, in the first world as well. Um, my other technique uh, meeting people was um, in, in the United States and Canada. I ran across in the winter pushing my, my cart, which I called Nirvana. I went up to farms and, and I asked, um, well, it's, uh, can I sleep in your barn, please? I was really hustling to get inside. And many, many people in America, they brought me into their homes uh, when I just requested somewhere to sleep in the barn. And, uh, and some of those people I'm still great friends with. Um, and so I, I'm pretty good at making connections with people. And, and I try my best to kind of return something as I did in running through the poor countries. Um, but there is no doubt about it. Um, spending some time in, in people's homes is is the ultimate way for to see the world and and I just think about it um people that are traveling in a bus they only see a limited amount they don't hear the noises from the field they don't see the flowers gradually changing as as they're cycling or running or walking a thousand kilometers they don't see the country unfold gradually they're probably in the bus they're probably asleep night time they get to see a little bit of the country uh, probably the people around them who uh, more than likely are locals 
for me, for example, supposing I was in a bus going across Western Iran, if I was, I ran across, um, I would probably travel that distance and not be aware that the that the language that's predominantly spoken in Western Iran is not Iranian Farsi. It's it's um, Azerbaijani uh, or Turkish. So these are the small little things you pick up on when you're if you're a cyclist runner or walker or the the slow travel you you get to see the nitty gritty and so I was able to see the signs uh, that gradually changed from Farsi into Turkish or Azerbaijani and I was people were telling me or I was asking the questions stopping in the tea shop in western Iran and I had that conversation uh, fortunately enough with an English language teacher um, it's it's just for me it's a no brainer it, it depends on what you want to do if you, if you want to hang out on the beach surf or whatever um, well then obviously you think I'm a nutter <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That, that was really interesting, um, and I, I really agree with you, Tony. I think the best parts of travel are, um, the best instances in travel are unplanned. Uh, you can't really book them in advance, and that's what's so great about slow travel, because you can um, absorb all of those many facets, you know, like uh, you, you mentioned in Western Iran, and you can meet people, you can meet with the locals in the villages that you go to, and... Um, I just wanted to confirm. Did you say that you, you carried around a little business card so that you could uh, find home? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, postcards and, and business cards. I only, um, um, yeah, I had them printed. That was um, one of my better ideas. Printed before <laughs> I before I left, uh, and so they. I, I was pushing the cart when I started in in. in pretty close to winter at the end of October in Ireland and around through Ireland into Canada and the States. So I was, I was running across storms in America. So obviously I did mention, I, uh, I did revert from pushing the cart when, when I needed it, as I did running across the winter in, in the States and Canada and Patagonia and other places that were remote. But most of the run, I didn't, more, about half of it, I didn't need the cart. I was running from village to village, no more further than three to five, ten kilometers apart. So I was able to run with two bottles in my hand uh, and get my food and drinks as I went with a backpack, two kilogram backpack. Um, so, so my techniques did revert from depending on where there was. So whenever I had the luxury of being able to carry heavy things like postcards and packets of business cards, I did, and I gave them out um, all the time. And um, so, yeah, I did. I handed them out. So, um, and and but. Um, Obviously, so it would take a bit of an effort to, to print them out before I started for our, um, the English-speaking world. And then uh, just for all of Latin America, um, I had them in Spanish. Um, so it was just, basically, it was just um, Google Translate, copy and paste, and put them on, uh, and, and then get an online printer to print them. But then once I got into um, places like Indonesia and, and, and East Timor, uh, other countries, Malaysia, Thailand, I, I wasn't in Thailand for very long. Um, um, so uh, it was it was time-consuming and, and expensive. I, I, I even developed on my idea, the business card, I don't need to go... Um, to print them, uh, not only is that expensive, time-consuming, just copy and paste, put a belt and do that about 20, 30 times onto an A4 sheet. And as I mentioned earlier on in the interview, then I, I copied that about 30 times, shall we say, put them in my backpack, run on, and then I'd meet someone that night. I was in their homes when about 30 people gather around 
and I'd make the sign with my fingers uh, for scissors. And they'd be wondering what I was trying to do when I take out the paper, then the A4 sheets with my business cards, and then they'd read them. <laughs> and then I, and then we'd cut them up and have great fun. And they used to pass around the A4 sheets to cut them up. They used to be nearly fighting to cut them up for me. Um, so so that was my method. That, that was relatively free to make business cards that way. And also, when you're running with a pack or walking, whatever you're doing, or even cycling, not only is weight important, but also bulk. Um, so, so obviously, not only was it to be able to print my own, I copied them out um, free, but it was also paper together, cut up like that. You is is less weight and less um, bulk than than a regular business card. So, um, so all of my techniques um, uh, um, kind of um, developed as I went on. There was I'm actually only before I took your call here. I'm writing the book at the moment. Uh, I'm 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 starting Columbia, and I was supposed to have a support driver for five or five or six months in the Andes, um, and and in the airport when I arrived in Colombia, having run um, all the way to Panama where the road runs out, um, I was actually let down by the uh, by the by the support driver in the airport. He couldn't. His car broke down. Um, and so I had to have plan B, where would I get a support driver? And I got really, I got thinking, do I really need one? It was really somebody else that told me that I did, that I would die in Colombia because of the um, humidity and the heat. But I don't think this person realized that I was better at coping with the heat and the humidity than this person. I took the person's advice and, and, and I did manage to source a driver. The agreement for that was $2,000 a month. He would provide the vehicle and the petrol and, and everything. And um, so um, I was saying to myself, I'm delighted I got let down. <laughs> I saved myself the $2,000 a month. Um, and Do I really need it? So I had to have a plan B before I was even let down. And my plan B was I had a heavy bag, with a big heavy sports bag, 20 kilograms, with spare running shoes, clothes. Um, I also kept an ATM card and, and a copy of my photographs in case I was mugged on the road. And what I did was I sent this 20 kilogram bag 1,000 kilometers ahead. I sent it on the buses as cargo. And the beauty was in, in the bus stations to hold on to baggage for a month. Um, so and also if I had any friends I could send her on as close as I could to the border area because then carry it over the border because obviously it's more difficult to send it over the border so I, I did that for more or less the whole length of South America my heavy bag I kept sending it on to friends or on the bus so I just had sent on my heavy bag and, and as I mentioned if I was I had a spare ATM card and my photographs copy so if I was ever mugged I would be only a, a bus um, right away from uh, for, from survival to be able to pick up my ATM card and my photos wouldn't be stolen. Um, so, um, so, so that was a, a system I developed in my mind. Uh, so I had a, um, there wasn't much of a template for this. So I kind of had to, uh, in many ways, um, stay ahead of things. And and uh, much of the headaches was also trying to uh, get get some of the logistics done uh, because I was mentally and physically tired going over the Andes. Uh, and um, trying to um, email people um, to have things done, um, trying to do my blog. Um, I was running very slow because I was very tired. So that meant I wasn't getting my recovery. Uh, my nutrition was going out the window because I hated Peruvian, Ecuadorian and, and um, Bolivian food, always cold. Um, 
Um, and um, so I wasn't getting the nutrition. I had serious muscle wastage in my left leg. Um, so even just standing, uh, I was told, that the physio that examined me told me I didn't know how I was standing, let alone running over a marathon a day. Um, but um, um, so it was um, a big effort just to keep going mentally, physically. Yeah, and I was just looking over some notes here. Uh, you ran the equivalent of 1,185 marathons, um, including one marathon a day. So I can't even imagine what that was like. And you mentioned logistics. Like, I, I, can't, I can't even imagine how you can plan for all of the logistics for a trip like this. Um, you must have had to, like, invent things as you go, right? Yeah, I've, I've just thought, talked at, uh, at length about some of the things, just some of the things as, as I went along, and to be able to adapt, um, adapt. Um, I plan, preparation, 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 but there's only so much you can prepare for. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, it was it was a, a big effort. Um, it was more than a marathon a day, and and um, just just to keep going was was very difficult. Um, um, but once I got to the halfway mark, um, twenty five thousand kilometers. Um, beyond that, then it was it was easier to keep going because I always said it was it was easier to keep going forward than it was to return and run back. So yeah, once I got to the that was that was roughly somewhere around New Zealand when um, when I was looking at the map, I was kind of running away from Ireland and south, and then when I turned around, I was looking straight up in New Zealand and through Australia. I was looking up and to the left, and I could see Ireland, and it was getting closer and closer. So just looking at the map, it was a great boost. Um, just to be able to keep going. As I mentioned, I had to break it up into small, manageable sections in my head. A big part of this journey is uh, mental. You know, you're, you're out on the road all by yourself, and um, you have to have this uh, ongoing conversation with yourself in your mind. Were you ever, did you ever feel like you were in danger? Were you ever afraid or thinking like, you know, I'm not going to survive this trip. I'm in my mid-50s. I know you've had a, a number of uh, misfortunes. You've experienced dehydration, some injuries. Uh, did, did you ever have doubts and what kept you going? Um, to be honest with you, yeah, I, I wouldn't say I had doubts that I would be mentally up for it um, or physically up for it. Um, the only thing uh, I, I, I worried about was, was that I would physically break down, my leg would break, I'd have an accident, but so long as I could stand up on being running through Mexico and, and I had the escort with the, the Green Angels, uh, Angeles Verdes, as you know, and um, they were escorting me, so that escort equals support vehicle. So I, I threw um, copious bottles of uh, two, three litres of Coca-Cola into the support vehicle. And for whatever reason, I just, with the heat, I just had a craving for it. I know looking back, it, do, um, it does sound stupid, illogical, but that's what I did. Maybe it was a bit like a drug. And, and then that was the worst thing I, I could have done there because it got up to 50 degrees. Uh, and uh, and um, I did have some dehydration problems. I went to the hospital twice. I was put on the drip. 
And um, strangely enough, after I recovered, um, they put the saline into me. They told me I could go out and run that same evening <laughs> when it cooled down. So that evening, I, I think I had something like 20 kilometers. And uh, I, I decided, look, um, it's still a little bit hot, but I, I don't really want to wait any longer. I got so I decided that particular evening I wouldn't run the 20K. I just walked it. And, and I, I couldn't believe it, three or four hours just walking, very easy pace. I peed, and, and the way I described my pee was, 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 was that you ever leave a box of nails out of the back garden, and then a year later, it's rusty brown when you drain off the, the, the rain. That's the way my pee was, that colour, coffee brown, I guess. And uh, so needless to say, I was worried, uh, um, never really heard anything. This never happened to me, needless to say, before. Um, so at those stages, I was wondering, um, I wrote about on my blog, was this the end of the run? Is there something happening to me? Are we talking about organ failure here? Now, I'm not really even sure if it was related to guzzling the Coca-Cola, but I stopped stopped pretty soon after that. Um, even though I had this um, unofficial support vehicle, I, I could throw in as much water as I, I wanted. I've always been a bad water drinker, even though I know it's important. This is one of those things. I also addicted to coffee, so that doesn't help either. Um, uh, but... Um, yeah, and you also asked me about uh, being afraid. Um, there were times, I, um, I, I'm not going to elaborate too much because I need to keep some stuff for the book, um, but I was robbed in, in, in Panama. <laughs> and um, I, was, I was robbed another time by the police, so I won't say what country that was. And um, there was another time um, I was running through, uh, I think it was Nicaragua, on my way to Costa Rica, pretty close to the border and I and I was running late in the evening uh, and I did a lot of stupid things like that running at night time when I shouldn't have uh, because I was running slow and because I was running slow I, I was very bad at getting up in the morning and stopped too much on the road so I often found that time ran out and I had to make up in the evening and so anyway I was running in one particular evening going through I think it was Nicaragua and um and I ran by a bridge where there were several youths, uh, young men, and they were just sitting down, talking, probably drinking beer. I don't know. I didn't look. But they were just laughing at the gringo. And I heard them saying, ah, gringo, gringo. And uh, one of them ran after me. And, and uh, he was a pretty decent runner. And as tired as I was, I just outran him. Uh, so obviously, I don't know if that was just he was teasing me, taking the mick, or, or if he was had serious intent I don't know I never know but um, so needless to say it was pretty scary uh, and the worst part was I still had about 15-20k to go and it rained torrentially for the last 5k uh, my, my backpack was in the place I was running to because that's sometimes what I do what, what I did um, um, I, I would commute in order, but because as you know they have all those buses mini buses that fly up and down the road so those buses could cover 40-50 kilometres and 40 minutes so I at the end of my day I'd uh, I'd go forward to the next town it's always better to go forward because you can leave your bag there and then come back because, so if you go backwards you don't have that luxury so so when I commuted forward so I was running to my bag and so obviously it wasn't a case of find that particular night finding a bridge sleeping under it get out of the rain besides I was soaked so I just had to keep my head strong run through that torrential rain and uh 
and um, I, I got to the whole, to the town, and this is typical of what can happen. So I got to that particular town, and um, it was it was ten or eleven o'clock. It was a sixty-five kilometer day, and um, I needed to eat before going to my hotel, and and I went. And I found a restaurant after walking around 15, 20 minutes. I eventually found a restaurant and they served me up a tiny meal. I only wrote about this on the blog just last week, so it's it's uh, still fresh. Seven French fries, an inch of salad, a slice of tomato and a tiny piece of steak. And I could have cried and I had to wait an hour for that. So these... This is, these are the kind of mental, physical thing. And all the while my clothes were wet and I was shivering from the rain. Um, these are just, that's just one day. Uh, but the all, weren't, the all days weren't like that. There was days when I was running in heaven, popping, bopping along. Uh, um, but um, there was another day I was running through Burma. I mentioned that I also got escorted for the last two weeks in Burma, uh, but not the first 10 days. So during this 10-day period when I was on my own, and um, as we know, Burma has recently kind of opened up. It, it kind of democracy, in inverted commas, I call it like democracy with, with military rules, pretty much like Turkey. Um, I was running along there, and um, even though the country officially had returned to democracy of sorts, the local um, police on the road don't really know what to make of it. And it's not like we send out an email to all police departments. Um, I did eventually stop in one of the police departments in, in a, a small village where they didn't have proper radios. And they had those old 1950s, 60s radios with the, the metal boxes that they communicate from village to village. Because these villages in Burma, Myanmar, had no electricity. Everything was generator, um, and um, they barely had petrol for the put into their cars. And if they had cars, they barely had tires for them. Uh, they were flat. Um, uh, but anyway, um, so the cops didn't quite know what to make of me, and they were suspicious nature, I guess, being a totalitarian, former totalitarian government. So I was running on my own, and uh, these two guys came along on a motorcycle, um, Honda 125-type bike, uh, and uh, they asked me what I was doing. And um, they didn't have police uniforms, and they, but they told me they were cops, but I didn't really trust them. I thought it was some kind of scam or they were trying to rob me. And um, so they said, no, no, stop, stop, and they were pretty aggressive. Um, so I just said no, no, and there was uh, some traffic on the road, so I was able to backtrack a bit, and they couldn't come back to me because there was cars coming, and um, so as they were coming towards me, um, I decided, look, I better just finish my day once again. It was night time, um, so I, I ran. I saw a, a gap in between a hedge, and I just ran in into a field. No sooner was I in this field when there was there was some water in it. It was swamped. And remember, we're talking about Burma, and there's a huge chance of snakes in there. And um, so these guys were shouting and uh, flashing in their flashlight, come out, come out, we are the police. And, and I, I still wasn't sure, obviously. So I just kept running in, and there was a kind of a little oasis of trees in the middle of, of this field. And um, so obviously that's where I headed for, and... and, and um, um, there was kind of little bits of water and, and wet fields that I ran through and eventually I got into it. I just had my backpack. If I would have had my car to remember, I couldn't have got away from these guys. So there was, um, so anyway, I got into this little oasis and they were going around for two hours, shining uh, very, very powerful spotlights. 
uh, I was about five, six hundred meters away. And um, so I don't really know what he didn't focus on this little oasis of grass where I was, uh, what to do for the night. I figured that if I would have went out, it would have been dangerous after all these guys were on the road with a motorbike and I was just a pedestrian. So I figured the best thing to do was to try and sleep where I was. So we were talking about in a wet little patch in a little tiny oasis with not knowing if the guys could come up when I was asleep. But I was running what's what's called a bivvy, which is, I don't know if many, I'm sure many of your read, uh, listeners know what a bivvy is, but many don't. It's it's like a Gore-Tex waterproof sleeping bag shell, but it's waterproof. And I had a summer sleeping bag, so I just pushed my summer sleeping bag into the into the Gore-Tex bag uh, and, and um, took me, as I said, several hours to go asleep because I was looking at seeing the flashlights going around and the mosquitoes all over the place i had a coil mosquito coil so i didn't want to light it in case um, well i guess you don't always think straight how could they see it from the road but i was also thinking if somebody walked in i didn't know that they, they were following me in because uh, I, um, I didn't know if there was any more people so i was a bit paranoid what they could smell and, and so i just didn't do it. I put up with the mosquitoes a bit in the way, not knowing of snakes or these guys who come in. So, so these are the joys you have when you're running around the world. It, in many ways, it just seems so easier just to turn on the Discovery Channel, put your book up, pull a nice little travel book out. Uh, but um, so there was many, many times like this, and or when I was being escorted through, uh, through Burma or through Mexico, that I looked around, I literally pinched myself and said, "Tony, are you living this dream? Surely this is." the documentaries that you watched on Discovery Channel, always other people doing it, now you're doing it, and there's a book like this up on top of your wardrobe back home. Um, I couldn't really believe, um, I I felt I was chosen to run around the world, uh, that I was actually living this amazing dream. (laughs) It's definitely easier to be the armchair traveler and just watch National (laughs) Geographic or Lonely Planet and just read about these places. you, you mentioned yeah. that you, you slept outside when you had to. I remember reading about uh, jockey Lafitte Pinke. Uh, he was a successful jockey um, up until his old age, and he had to make a lot of sacrifices. Like, he wasn't allowed to eat any sweets. He had to maintain his weight because um, a jockey has to stay, you know, really light. Um, so he would eat cake, and then he would spit it out. And I want to ask you, like, what, what kind of sacrifices did you have to make uh, to make this journey reality? And um, how were you able to make this feasible in a, in a financial sense as well? Um, well, well, firstly, um, one of the joys of being a budget traveler is, is, is that you can, um, and, and especially when you're not tra- even traveling on buses from city to city, is expensive if, if you're a bus type traveler because you have to pay for the bus then what do you do? Where do you sleep? Then yet when you arrive at your destination, you have to pay for the hotel, uh, you notice as a cyclist. And um, so it's it's the week in between towns where you can live for very little unless you find a, um, a place that when you gorge out on a big stake or something like that. Uh, or, uh, so, but most of the time, I've gone I've gone a three, four, five days and hardly spent a dollar and then there's days I go and spend thirty, forty dollars. So but life as a budget traveller um uh, depends on how tough you are as well because um, uh, I used to have a theory that when you're traveling in the poorer countries it's more expensive because you just gorge out and, and but when you're traveling through uh, likes of Switzerland you can go across the whole country and only spend a penny when you have to um, but so fun but um, to answer get back to your question 
mean, I, I did have about €20,000 in my own savings and, and one or two sponsors, the North Pole Marathon, uh, uh, an Irish extreme runner, Richard Donovan, is a great friend of mine, and, and also his business, uh, he he has extreme races around the world. And um, so he, he was um, gave me a few um, a few checks along the way, sizable checks. So that was great help. But I also did have a, a button on my website um, for people to, if they wanted to sponsor me a hotel night. So um, putting all the, the money together, it was um, somewhere between 40,000 and uh, 45,000 euro. And uh, when you divide it between the days, it was something like probably 30, 35 euro a day. And as I mentioned, there was lots of days I didn't have, um, didn't spend much. So it does seem a bit expensive. Um, um, I, I could, I, I, as tough as I was, um, I could have done it cheaper if I wanted to, but um, they were the resources I had at my means, so I, I managed. Um, there was definitely no um, staying in cheap hotels. I did manage to be able to hustle a lot. So if, if you did have the money, um, it would definitely cost you a lot more um, because then you wouldn't be thinking, like I read your blog about, uh, you stayed in a uh, you, you you ran out of the reception of a hotel in Catalonia in Baja where they were asking for two hundred dollars. Uh, the reality for me was uh, I was um, being escorted by the Mexican police and they put pressure on this exact same hotel that I read about in your blog, where the reality for me was the government put uh, well I think they requested uh, in this particular case that. The hotel look after me, and they did. And they treat me like a king in that hotel. So I got the two hundred dollar room that you didn't get. I got it for three nights. I took one rest day, and I commuted back. And 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 I, and I wish I could remember the name of the waiter. He was incredible because he also threw in free food for the three days. I ate like a king there every night. And and he said, "Are you okay?" Because he knew I was coming back after I stayed there three nights, and I commuted back as well from my start finish so he get, he filled up my uh, one litre thermos with the most delicious soup and sandwiches for the road and so so you do have these bonuses when when you're doing something that's quote unquote different uh, um, sorry, I, I'm sorry I do go on long winded I, <laughs> I, I know there was about three or four questions in there no, no, remember the finances I, yeah my yeah. takeaway there is that um you mentioned uh, your experience in Catavina, where you stayed at this fancy resort. Uh, I, I did a cycling trip across Mexico. That's what you're referring to. And uh, yeah, yeah. I had to sleep uh -huh. in this uh, abandoned building. Um, <laughs> not quite the same. But I think, I think my takeaway there is that people have been drawn to your mission and they've helped you. You know, you tell them you have these business cards or you tell people that, you know, hey, I'm Tony Mangan. I ran here from Ireland and I'm, I'm running across the world. And... My takeaway from that is I think if, if you have a big mission that's driving you, um, the universe kind of conspires to help you, would you say? I absolutely, uh, I would agree. I, I mentioned about going across the uh, United States. Um, so I also have a, a letter of introduction from the Lord Mayor of my city. And, and I, I call that my magic letter because it literally opened doors. With my magic letter, I was able to go up to receptions and hotels and ask for the manager and, and just say, look, you have a hotel here. And I don't think you're going to be full tonight. I'll give you $20 for this 50, 60, 70 euro um, room. And Many times they said yes, many times they said no. It cost me $10, $15 to make the bed, is what one or two people said. But times they said, wow, you're doing what? Come back here, tell me this, sit down and have a cup of tea. You can have the room for nothing. 
Uh, other times I was running through uh, some national park in Newfoundland, I can't remember the name of it, and uh, there was actually a small little resort in the middle of it, and it was a very, very cold night in the month of November, and and um, and I, I produced my magic letter, and, and I asked for a $20 discount, and the guy said, yeah, sure. It was kind of self-contained chalets, and um, so I was delighted to get that room that would cost, I think, $80, $90, if I remember rightly. And the guy came back after reading my letter and, and opening up the room, and, and he came back with some sandwiches and, and coffee. And he was on a guilt trip, not me, for hustling. He gave me $10 back. <laughs> I guess he needed $10, you know, fairness. But um, so, so um, you were talking about earlier on about, if I had a blank check and I didn't have to hustle, how much would it cost? It would probably cost me four or five times what it did. It's At the end of the day, it's your resources, how tough you are. I could have been tougher. When I was on my cycle trip, I, was, I went all the way across Switzerland and hardly spent the penny. Uh, just carried the fruit on whatever sorry uh, food I had from the previous country, um, and slept on the bridges, uh, and um, uh, slept in barns too, and uh, hustled a couple of meals from people that I met, and um, I, so I, I've noticed that uh, I, I kind of I do get some question marks from people uh, when I'm honest about uh, my methods of travel. Um, you what you hustle, so you're like a, a kind of a the modern day beggar going around not really no look I'm being honest um, I didn't have this was the only way I could run around the world I wasn't rich when I started I had 20,000 but it cost 40,000 and um, so I came back with nothing um, you also mentioned about sacrifices I haven't worked since I got back I'm back now six and a half months and um, well there are many reasons why I'm not working um, well one um, the job I left was a construction job one want to go back to a construction job too and battered yeah i know i could do more i could go out and do some motivating talking but there's i've had a lot of distractions my um i come to my mom later on uh, not only that um uh, but also um, um i'm writing my book uh but um so um yeah it's my mom did say to me uh, i know you've lived your dream uh, but You've lost a lot as well. You had a nice, comfortable job. You could have been in a nice relationship or a nice girl and probably had kids and whatever. Yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, yeah, but, um, yeah, that, that's that's reality. But would I be satisfied? Um, I don't think so. And uh, what am I going to do next? Yeah, um, yeah. so um, there are some of the sacrifices. But there's, there's always the pluses and... and I, you know, I, I, I'm so grateful to the people I met that actually made this dream happen, and uh, it, it doesn't matter. Um, and 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 at time at the time when I was writing my blog, I I, I wrote it as honestly as I could, uh, almost like it was a textbook for somebody that wanted if they wanted to run around the world, they would be faced with the same challenges. And and I think to be honest with you, without blowing my own trump, I think I was too honest, and I find myself editing a lot of my honesty out of the book, um, for for. Uh, and I couldn't believe what I wrote about Panama, shall we say. Um, and, and it was only with reflection. Because remember, there was a tired mind that was writing this. For the example about Panama, it was, um, I just edited this out a couple of nights ago. Was uh, I was running along and nobody will offer me water. Handing out my water bottle because it was in a very, very hot area running towards the Darien area. And there was not much water around. And as cars were slowing down, they were looking at me taking the water bottle from me. 
and and I couldn't help putting in what kind of people are these. I remember running through the Arizona, California desert. I'd started with only two bottles in the morning, and I had to refuse bottles by mid-afternoon. So many people were stopping. But the the truth to this, the answer to this, the absolute truth is, is that in California and 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 Arizona, people are used to people like me running, cycling, whatever. They're not used to it in Panama. It was a culture, and and, and the people only got a short few moments to reflect. What's this? Half of the time they're in shock and then probably will think about me when they're gone. But there's a fair few people that turn back. But I wrote my blog as honestly as I could. Um, um, uh, there was a bit of anger at times, uh, but um, it may have come across. My blog may have come across as being ungrateful, but no, no, uh, I, I wrote it honest. But just like in, in real life, I, I'm only human despite running around the world. Um, I do say things I regret. And um, so I've... I've um, no problem uh, about um, admitting mistakes. Sorry, once again, I got lost in your question. That's all right. I think that's a great point you brought there. I mean, it's it's so important to be honest and um, tell the story exactly as it happened. Otherwise, you'd be doing a disservice to your readers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the yeah. fallout from that is, I, I think, I, I don't know, I, I kind of suspect... A lot of people are probably shunning me. They probably think I'm a, I'm like a, a running tramp, you know, hustling. Uh, um, um, yes, yeah, so a bit of a hobo. Well, I guess. Well, yeah. Well, there's a hobo, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped in. Uh, I remember one particular incident. This keep coming back. I, I was running through Pennsylvania and storms and blizzards and. And I ran right up to some petrol station. And the first thing I always do is look for somewhere to sit down. And the only place to sit down was sacks of that ice melt stuff that they have. So I sat down and a big smile on my face. I was delighted. Uh, and, and I had a huge coffee, as they serve in America, as you're well aware. I love my coffee. And I was sitting there with a big smile on my face and uh, living the dream. I was fairly only three, four five months into it. So I was relatively fresh. And and I saw the people from behind the counter and they were looking over at me like, will we call the police? Will we call the police? And he looked outside and they, only, they told me this afterwards. And he looked outside and he saw the cart I was pushing, which could have been a, a, a tramp, a supermarket trolley that tramps push. But it was a kind of a posh, a posh supermarket trolley because um, it was a jogging shawler, as I mentioned earlier on, with all my camping gear and spare wheels and stuff on it. And um, so anyway, after a little while, the people, uh, the manageress approached me with a double cheeseburger and fries and said, on behalf of the staff, sir, I just want to give you this. And I looked them straight in the eye with, with my smile. And first thing I said was, oh, thank you very much. And the second thing was, having secured the meal was, you think I'm a tramp, don't you? And she smiled and says, yes, we are, but we didn't want to offend you. I said, I'm not a tramp. I'm living my dream. Thanks for the burger. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had and Oh, and another time somewhere in the New York State, I think it was, my face was frozen eyelids. Um, and and um, I was wondering, what the hell? These day, it's times like this when, when, you're, when you don't want someone to pull up and ask you, Why? Because you already feel a bit of an idiot. You know, don't ask me why now. There's a time and a place for why. So this car pulled up and, and, and the guy said, do you want the job? And so I said, no, no, I don't want the job. I'm running around the world. Can I get into your car and just free, just, just to defrost? 
So I sat in the car. No sooner was I in the car without even asking him, I had my boots off and I, he had the heater on full blast and I had two or three pairs of socks. I don't take the cold very well. I had my feet and my hands up on the up on the dashboard of the heater and, and he said, oh, I thought you were the tramp and I was going to offer you a job. Uh, I have some trees I want to cut up into firewood. And I said, no, 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 no. And you see, it was both with this guy and, and with the, in the supermarket. The mentality from people running through there was, well, you wouldn't be out if you didn't have to on a day like this. There was another, there was, I got countless experiences like this. It was another day I was running through the state of Maine. Maine was one of the uh, surprises of the United States. I've always wanted to go to Alaska, but I never have. And, and the comparison I got from the state, state I was just expecting a, a routine state, nothing much. Was, I was I was taken aback by the beauty, and so many people compared Maine to Alaska. It's like a mini Alaska. But anyway, I was running through there, loving the state, having a wonderful time. And um, uh, it was another storm, and a cop came along, and he said, what are you doing here? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm running around the world. And, and uh, I was afraid that he pulled me off the road um, because there wasn't much shoulder on the side. I think you guys call it breakdown lane uh, that I need to run in. And the thing about breakdown lanes is is that um, um, if they dump the snow in the snowplow, that's even if they plow it, uh, then I'm running through snow, pushing my car, so it's difficult. Uh, and also my feet are frozen. Um, and um, so anyway um, I was afraid he pulled me off but he didn't, he just said oh I got a call, I got to go, you just go on ahead be careful, so I did and I was wondering where in the hell am I going to sleep tonight there was no sign of any barn, that's what I was looking out for, any kind of shelter or bridge, there was no sign of anything sometimes there's bridges but you have to get over the all the, 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 what do you call it, the crash barrier thing. It's all right with a bicycle, but not pushing a heavy cart. Um, so um, so anyway, there was nowhere that particular night. It was looking pretty bleak. So all of a sudden, I, I came to uh, what looked like Department of Transport and, and their offices. But for some reason, well, it was about 8 o'clock at night. Um, so first, I just went up to it. I was looking for some kind of an outdoor shelter, maybe a shed or something that I could throw my sleeping bag down in. And I would have been in heaven had I found that. But instead, I just tried the door. It was open. Couldn't believe it. And there was a load of firewood outside. So pretty cheeky that I was. Uh, I just lit, my fire, I lit a fire there and dried out my clothes. And um, I dried out my clothes and um, and slept there that night. But I wasn't sure if it was um, just um, winterized and I didn't want to be charged or anything like that. So I just left before uh, 7.30 or something like that, before they started work. I've had countless experiences like that. Well, shall I tell you about coming into the United States from Canada? So anyway, I was coming up to the border, pushing my carts that I call Nirvana. Um came right up to the border, and as we all know, U.S. immigration can be a bit dodgy, uh, a bit um, something to fear at the best of times. And if I was stopped from crossing, well, then it's a huge gap in my run. So what to do? So obviously it was pretty bore, important border crossing. So I arrived there and uh, pushing my cart in, uh, I was told to go into the office, and um, three or four immigration customer off, uh, customers, um, uh, customs officers were checking out my cart nirvana kicking the tires and i could see their 
they were changing they were starting to warm a little bit towards me and then they wheeled it into the into the office where the um, immigration officer had a laptop and um so after introducing myself tell her what told her what i did and I was only starting my run, so there was about 30-odd countries ahead of me. It took me two minutes to, to tell her where I was going, just like my interviews, they go on. So eventually, in the meantime, she was checking out my blog, and she said, Tony Mangan, I see you sleep on the bridges. I see you want uh, you hustle for hotel rooms. I see you, you, you hustle for barn places. And, uh, and 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 cheap meals and people treat you like a cramp and you want to enter the United States and I said uh, yes officer and she says how long do you need and I said well five months and she says here's six months you're in so I got I'm running down the road I'm about an hour down the road and um, this big brown pickup truck pulls up and he said you must be the crazy guy from Ireland running around the world and I says you're right on both occasions yeah that's me so he said, well, listen, that woman that you were speaking to back in immigration, she's my fiance, and here's something for you. And I opened it up. It was five days before Christmas, Christmas card and $20. Welcome to the United States, is what she said. I still have that Christmas card. So um, U.S. immigration get a hard time from time to time. But that was a lovely story. I love sharing that story. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to hear that you got a warm welcome to the States. Um, when I go back, I... I typically don't get the same uh, reception, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, they tend to Oops. pat me down and go through everything. They want to see my computer files and, and all that stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you know what my two favorite countries of the whole run were? Uh, no, I don't. What's, I, I can guess maybe one. Joint, joint. Well, um, United States and Iran. Really? The United States and your, Iran? I've actually heard from a lot of people that uh, Iran is very underrated and that it's one of their favorite places. Uh, well, I, I tell you, there's two, two problems with Iran. Um, I, when I say brand, problems, I mean branding problems. The first one is exactly that, branding, uh, especially if you don't mind me saying so, coming from your country. Uh, not, not a lot of people travel, as we know. Um, so a lot of people from from America, kind of packaged Iran in with Afghanistan and Pakistan, you're worldly, you know, they're different, a little bit different, but not totally, and India and a couple of other countries. And, and But Iran is completely different. Iran had amongst the best roads on the whole run, uh, um, electricity everywhere. It's a futuristic country. Um, problem with Iran is, is, is really the the government, uh, not the people, but the Iranian people. You, I, I give you a task. You go to Lonely Planet Travel Guide, the forum, ask, is it safe to, just type in this question, is it safe to travel in Iran? You will get, you won't find one bad word about the country, the people rather, whatever about the government. It's, and every cyclist I've ever met in my life, I remember earlier on in the interview, I mentioned about my cycle trip, cycling around the world. I was stuck in that country for six months. Six months, I had no money, um, and um, the border was closed. That's why I was stuck there, um, because the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini had called for civil disobedience. So that was many, many years ago. I had every reason to hate the country, but now I love the country. Um, uh, the people were wonderful. But to be honest with you, I got wall-to-wall hospitality from uh, not only from Iran, but um, uh, from the United States and 
I really think if I had to push a push between the two, I think I'd choose the United States. But I'm not going to admit it because it's, I think it's a, it, it, it's a great kind of, um, I think the media would like it. The irony of it all is that they were my two favourite countries. So I'm, I'm going to use whatever I can. Uh, but <laughs> if I had to be pushed, I think I'd say uh, the United States. Um, but it, it, that is one thing. It's A lot of people ask me the question, uh, uh, what's your favourite country? Uh, it's it's kind of hard to choose because how can I how can I prefer somewhere like Singapore that took me half a day or three quarters of a day to run across against six months across the United States wall to wall hospitality you know um, so it's one of those things that's hard to quantify but it's it's I don't really see the need to um, it's just um, it's a question I get asked all the time uh, um, yeah I always I always get asked that question as well what's your favorite place of all the places you've traveled and it's it's such a complex question and I don't think it's actually a very good question because there's there's things you love about certain places and it's it's so hard to describe all of the details and all of the little things that make a country interesting and special. You can't really condense that into a short answer. Absolutely not. And the, amongst the best roads in the whole run was, was Thailand because, as you know, they have mm. this uh, four-lane divided highways with the turnabout every kilometer and two-meter hard shoulder. For almost every single kilometer until I turned off, went turned left towards, I can't remember the border town going into Burma. That was the only part that didn't have four-lane divided highway with my two-meter shoulder. I was in heaven running through Thailand, ran at night, felt safe, stopped in um, stopped in um, Buddhist temples. And, uh, oh, yeah, God, I got so many stories to tell uh, going through <laughs> Thailand, going through the, the Buddhist temple. We tend to think of um, Buddhists as being very, very holy people, the monks. The monk there told me that he he had a girlfriend and he used to live in Amsterdam and he had a child. And that was when he was a wayward person. And, and now he's reformed and, and um, he doesn't obviously have a, a mobile phone or to have any communications or any luxuries. But, um, no, they're not so holy. I have been in Burma. I've been in because, uh, you know, in, in Burma, it's, um, uh, it's in um, Burmese culture or Burmese Buddhism that um, they have to serve for two periods in their in their in their life. Usually, I think when they're about twelve or fourteen, and some time later on in their life, two short periods. But I've been in. This is a terrible thing to say, but I was in an internet cafe and I saw two of these young student Buddhists. Um, you were only about thirteen, fourteen. They were young boys. <laughs> and they were looking at porn, <laughs> looking at porn in the in, in internet cafe. Yeah, but um, <laughs> these are the kind of things you discover. You know, there's a lot of there's, the world is different to what you think it is, to what you perceive it. Yeah, get out, get out, travel without sounding like an old grandfather to your listeners. I say, get out, <laughs> travel, live life. And so this is the one thing. And I know one of the questions you're asking me about to ask me is how have I traveled. It's very uh, sorry. How have I um, uh, um, um, changed? It's one of the things you have to be careful about is is that you don't come across as very pious. Um, for example, you hear you hear um, the celebs, quote unquote celebrity people being interviewed on the radio talking about reality um, jungle survival, where they said. It was terrible. They didn't give me enough food and they didn't promise that they didn't have showers and they didn't have enough 
um, clothes and and they're being interviewed in the jungle sitting on a red couch and, and I, well I just mentioned about the had the two guys in the motorcycle in in, the, in Burma you know so that's that's the real reality TV um, so that's what I mean about it's it's kind of hard not to come across as pious and it's all and uh, um um holier than thou I guess um and other other problems oh yeah yeah when when you hear um young kids talking about oh they're not going to go somewhere because they want to watch a football game or instead of going out and living their own life you know you want to say get out and live your life get out and live your life but so I find myself holding back a lot from that and also shall we call them first world problems you know uh yeah here I've just Christmas just gone I listen to a lot of talk radio Christmas just gone um I was the days between Christmas and the New Year when everybody is on holidays, at least in Ireland. And um, so this person rang in and said, I have an emergency, an emergency. The dishwasher has just broken down. And anybody know where I can get it fixed in this? And and, the host presenter was saying, well, I really pity you. That's a terrible uh, disaster this time of the year, of all times of the year. And remember, I just ran across Peru and and didn't see one single electrical appliance. I'm talking about kettle, microwave, anything like that. Everything, as as you know, is cooked on stick fires or or um or um the, what do you the fuel uh, gas um, kerosene. Yeah. Um. So 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 it's, it's kind of hard to when people are having conversations and they're saying it's terrible the dishwasher broke down in Peru you know what the dishwasher is is your hands so you have to kind of little hang back from um, conversations like this um, or you, you kind of become <laughs> labelled stick in the mud or something like that so uh, in many ways that's that's um, uh, the way I have changed uh, and, and, and just extending from that also um I I know it's 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 a common cliche, but it really is true. We don't know how lucky we are in this part of the world. We talked about not standing out amongst um, in poor countries, but we do. We're only just a phone call to our embassy away from being taken out of a place. Uh, so we are so lucky. Not only that, and and I see the way women are treated around the world. That's another issue that really depressed me on the run. Uh, 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 not only in the Islamic countries. Um, in well, in in your part of the world as well, Southeast Asia, less so there. Uh, but in in Latin America as well, I was surprised. Um, I think it's cultural that, uh, where women have lost confidence because everything is perceived to be a man's a man's um, a man's job. Uh, I went three months looking specifically watching out to to see did I ever see any any woman drive a car? Not one single woman in three months. Um, same in Bolivia and Ecuador. Um, so, um, uh, so we obviously realise um, how lucky I am um, to come from where I am. And uh, our own country, they're talking about it at the moment. They never stop complaining about it being the country about to collapse. And we know about Greece, how that's going to collapse. But, um, you know, look at Libya. <laughs> God, they don't... Ha- I-, I was reading something on the BBC website this morning uh, where they... Um, traffic uh, and the traffickers are working advertising in Libya and one of the questions the BBC reporter put to them was are you not afraid you'd be arrested and he, he just laughed and says but there's no there's no authorities here there's no police nothing here you don't have an airport you've absolutely no structure and and 
when you see the boatloads coming over from across the Mediterranean, and and um, it's 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 um, as I said, it's 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 a cliche, but it's my God, it's true. And and oh yeah, there was one thing I wanted to say. Uh, there's there's a lot of standout memories. Um, I, I remember coming into a plaza in some small town in Peru. Saturday, it was Sunday evening, and there was a, a, a two-ton truck, open truck, and and it just stopped in the plaza and it dumped out oranges, thousands, hundreds of thousands. And then there was it's always always seems to be a woman's job. She sat there with her blankets, cold, cold winter evening, waiting for people to come along. Now, what's the population in that town, and how long was she going to be there for? But that's the reality. Um, this is this is real hard work, and we talk about how hard we have it here. This is so. So that lady probably sat there till orange. All the oranges were gone, or maybe she was given a rest by um, daughter or whatever. And um, and also another running through Guatemala. I remember seeing women standing at the side of the road selling little. And, and there was tend to be twenty, thirty stalls all selling the same thing. So if one customer stops, there's a chance of twenty, thirty. And um, so there's. They're selling very little on the whole day until midnight, from six in the morning until midnight. I remember writing in my diary. And um, and then we got the roads, in, especially in Bihar State in India, where women uh, are uh, primary. It's always women um, collecting cow and buffalo dung with their bare hands and uh, farming it. So it's only when you experience the world like this. And, and I go back to traveling on foot or also on a bicycle, that's my third favourite method of travel, um, uh, running and walking. Uh, first, um, in a bus travel, you, you miss so much of this, and I just keep coming back to connections with people, how incredible it is just to, um, um, how lucky I was to have the health to be able to um, to run and to experience the world in, in, in such a manner. Um, so, so, um, so thrilling, so lucky, rewarding. <laughs> I can only imagine the sense of accomplishment that you um, must feel after completing this journey. And I think in spite of all of the challenges and sacrifices that it's, it's so worth it. It's better than spending your whole life wondering uh, what if. Uh, Tony, we're running a little bit uh, short on time here, but I want to uh, end on a, a deep question. Uh, for, for those who would follow in your footsteps, why is it that most people don't just start on their dream what is it that we're afraid of do you think uh, well as, as we all know the hardest part can be um can be just making the first step just making the decision and going with it and the finances are another way but I, I always think that there if you want to if you believe it just anything okay i'm a, i'm just a regular athlete but through hard work and belief and wanting it so bad, like you watch football games and you keep on hearing a commentator saying, he got to the ball first because he wanted it more. Look, do you want to read other people's travel books? Do you want to read other people's dreams? Or, or do you want to read your own? Just go and make for it. And I'm, I was just in competition. Um, I was just a regular athlete. And then I, when I really applied myself to it, made it hard, uh, really worked harder. It, um, I had a lot of success. And, and I finished it off by, by running around the world. But I, I think there's a lot of fear of the unknown. I, I mentioned earlier on about what, what might, must seem like um, excruciating difficulty, the fear of it. Um, 
in, in that field in, in Burma with possibly snakes and, and the people coming in after me. Um, but I, I just mentioned that. And my mom was sick. I, I know you're getting to that as well. So I did have a responsibility to, to, to get this run finished and to get back to her before she died. Um, but, but anyway, um, I, um, um, I, I really believe that if you want something, you, you can do it. And, and it's, it's just so easy to sit at the fireplace on a very, very cold night. Um, if you drink, pull out a bottle, a bottle of wine or a beer or something like that, pull out and your favorite travel book and, and, uh, just be comfortable yeah, you can do that. Maybe that might satisfy you if if it does. Uh, your um, travel armchair traveler, um, if that satisfies you, fine. Um, but if you really, if there's something that's telling you that you've got to get out and live your dream, and and it doesn't matter what your dream is. Many many people told me uh, I was living their dream, and and I said, what? You wanted to run around the world, and no, and somebody said to me, no, I want to go across Highway 66 on a Harley. So, you see, I was living my dream, even though they had a different dream. I was living it. They weren't living theirs. And uh, going through Baja Peninsula in Mexico, I met um, a man who told me that he was gone away 10 years before cycling the peninsula of Baja, which is 1,600 kilometers, 1,000 miles. And his people, and I'm a stranger, took care of me. I'm sure they would have taken care of him. That man, I won't sound a little bit holier than thou, but I'm sure he could have got it. A few dollars together, um, and um, um, and and then just got a got his bicycle and, and just did it. So if ever I keep coming back to that particular guy as as looking for an excuse, if ever I found anybody looking for an excuse, it was that man. And he's probably that was four years ago. He's probably saying, "Well, I've only six years now to go live my dream, and then you get married, have kids." And I've I've had other people talk about their their dreams, their ambitions, and it could be opening a restaurant. If that's your dream, that's just as equal as my dream was to run around the world. And and one thing I can never say uh, say we all have equal dreams. I can never keep a straight face when I said or get married and have lots of kids and have them screaming and shouting that that's just as wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> sure it is, but I can never keep a straight face when I say it. Yeah. Well, Tony, congratulations on your uh, achievement. It's such an inspiration to, uh, I hope everyone listening to this, and it certainly yeah. certainly inspired me. I'm ready to just uh, start my own yeah. hitchhiking or cycling trip after uh, this interview with you. Thank you. That, yeah, just, just one thing I, I want to say. Um, sure. Um, now, uh, uh, I, I, I mentioned two or three times during the interview about my mom, uh, so maybe I'll just um, finish that. I was about um, one, one year and nine months into my run uh, when, when I got a message from my sister that my, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And the prognosis, I still had two years and three months to go, was, was, um, was, the, was that she had two years at max. And um, so she cut a very, very long story short. My mom wouldn't let me start, um, compromise my dream. My mom said that she would die heartbroken uh, if I didn't finish my world run. So I was out on the road and, and I cried. Uh, what would I do? What would I do? I can't think about it. And, and I said, well, and, and you can imagine for not only the 20 years in planning, but also the four years I was, I was on the road, I was dreaming of that finish line countless times. And I said, am I going to be singing that Pink Floyd song 
I wish you were here. Um, but uh, as I crossed the finish line, so anyway, um, I went back for one or two timeouts, always returning to the exact spot to continue, and um, and and uh, never knowing uh, when I, if I'd see my mum again. And uh, uh, last time, the last she was actually too sick to see me to the airport and so she was really sick she had 25 chemo sessions and uh, uh, so that was really keeping me going and and i think it was keeping her going going as well because she outlived the prognosis when i finished it was two years and four months so she remember she'd only been given two years since she was diagnosed so she was there and she ran the last 50 meters across the finish line with me and and, and that was so wonderful and and then um i finished um she died five months just recently six weeks ago or so uh, about five months after I finished so um, that was that was um, in many ways that was my happiest day of my whole life that not only did I finish my world run but my mum was there to to complete the final footsteps with me and um, yeah I owe my strength to my mum uh, she's the strongest mum uh, mother um, woman I've ever known and uh, I could talk about her a lot, uh, what she did, and um, um, uncharacteristically um, strong in a very conservative Ireland, um, and and we had a tough upbringing. But my mum steered us, um, steered us through um, a great upbringing where a policeman has never knocked on any of our doors, any of the doors of our grandchildren. She's um, she really set set us up morally for life, and a strong woman, and um, I, I still miss her. I saw a video of her. She seemed like a very lovely lady, and I'm so sorry for your loss, Tony. Um, I'm sure she must be, I can't imagine a mother who would be more proud of her son than, than she must be of you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what everybody tells me. Um, she was a very, very humble woman, but I was told, I was told by her friends um, that behind my back, she was at her happiest when she was boasting about me, even though she never boasted in her life. She was at her happiest <laughs> when she was boasting about. So I think I think that's probably the best tribute she could give me. So and I'm certainly proud of her. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tony. You've been so generous um, sharing your experiences and um, so honest and, and open um, as true to your style and. For anyone who would love to, uh, I would love to read your blog and uh, hear more about your stories. Uh, go visit theworldjog.com. That's Tony's blog. And um, was there anything else you wanted to impart before we finish this interview, Tony? No, not at all. Um, just buy the book when it's out. <laughs> Maybe I'll do another interview then if, if uh, I haven't covered everything. <laughs> do, do you have any uh, more um, uh, epic just, adventures uh, ahead of you, Tony? Oh, uh, ahead of me, I, actually, I mentioned earlier on in the interview that um, uh, my sponsor was the North Pole Marathon, a friend of mine, and, and I was coming around. Uh, my final footstep on, on the finishing line was 50,000 kilometers, not a meter more. Um, and, and you see, I told you you get all these um, funny ideas, um, lots of time to think. And I finished off with a full lap of Ireland, a thousand mile lap of Ireland. And the final footstep was calculated so it would be exactly 50,000, not a meter more. Someone said that would be showing off. And I was coming around, I was in the last kilometer or two wondering will I ever run again? Because I, I, I was about to collapse and really I'm, I'm tired of running at this stage. My sponsor, the race director of the North Pole Marathon, greeted me at the finish line with a voucher saying, here's a here's a, a free return trip to the North Pole Marathon, which was last month. Um, 
and and uh, you don't have to run back because it's return. So um, so he gave me a free entry, and I just ran the North Pole Marathon um, last month and had an absolute blast, wonderful. And uh, only in the last couple of days, I got an offer for all expenses um, entry into a race in Siberia. So, so um, I have to keep running, I guess. So, um, but it's, it's. I promise you one thing, Danny. It's not going to be as much. <laughs> well, best of luck to you, Tony. Uh, whatever you decide to do, and um, thank you so much for your time on this interview. And, and, and thank you, Danny, for this this opportunity. And, and thank you um, for all of the listeners out there for for tuning in. I appreciate it very much. And, um, and we talk again. I really enjoyed it, Tony. Take care. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Bye.